when it comes to baseball, he's no ordinary Joe. We'll talk with baseball analyst and writer Joe Sheehan next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's the week of February 15th and show number 5 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And in addition to baseball analyst and writer Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Jock Thompson. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at San Diego infield prospect Jed Giorco. And in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about embracing the PED problem. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers are in camp. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, pitchers and catchers have reported. The position players are going to be right behind them and spring training games start next Friday on the 22nd. In the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report. A few technical difficulties, but we're glad to welcome our old friend, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Good to have you. Uh, let's uh, talk about some pitching situations in the National League Central this week. Uh, starting in Chicago, it looks like they're pretty set at the top of the rotation with Jeff Samarja stepping up as an ace. They've got Matt Garza and Edwin Jackson taking the two and three slots. The first question mark really seems to be that number four starter, Carlos Villanueva. Carlos Villanueva came off free agent from Duro, and I think one of the reasons he wanted to sign in Chicago was that they're going to be in the rotation. He wanted to be in the rotation other than coming out of the win. And in fact, last season pitched very well when he came uh, when he joined the rotation in Toronto. 1.93 ERA in July, 3.41 in August. Uh, full skill support beyond, behind that looked very very good. And then in September, the wheels came off. A uh, uh, an 8.10 ERA, 21% home run per fly rate. Uh, and for Villanueva, who's had a uh, a, a, a history of gopheritis problems, uh, that wasn't perhaps supreme. That that the, that the home run per fly rate went way up. Uh, and as a result, the ERA went up with it. So the question is, what's going to happen in Chicago? And, and uh, it may be that moving out of the uh, American League East into National League Central and into Wrigley Field will help curb some of the, the gopheritis problems. Wrigley Field is, uh, a, little, is a bit um, a more pitcher half arc than, uh, than Toronto. Uh, if you can get that ball rate down a bit, uh, second half last season, he just had a 48% ball rate. First half at 4% ball rate. So if you get the fly ball rate down, uh, a better pitching venue, uh, there's some real upside, but there's also a lot of risk there with Villanueva. It's surprising to hear whenever anybody says Wrigley Field is a more pitcher-friendly environment than anywhere, but it really is. Yeah, it is indeed. If you look at the numbers, you know, your, our impression is that it's not. But if we look at the numbers, I think it decreases uh, left-handed batter home runs by about 9% uh, and, and doesn't uh, oh, it inflates right-handed batter home runs a little bit. 
uh, I believe. Maybe I've got those reversed. I don't have the numbers in front of me. But it really is a fairly neutral park and, and actually a little bit helpful. Especially compared to Toronto, which is a, a Homer-happy haven. I wonder, Nick, uh, Carlos Villanueva for the last couple of years has mostly pitched out of the bullpen. Are there durability or uh, um, issues regarding how, how long he can maintain his form as a starting pitcher into the season? Well, there certainly might be, and uh, and with his his September fade, you have to ask that question, and so that's something I think we'll never know and won't know until we see uh, how it works over a uh, over a longer period of time. Down in Milwaukee, they have a rotation that has uh, a few questions as well. Giovanni Gallardo definitely going to be the ace of the rotation there, but after that, it's a little bit shaky. Number two starter Mike Fears was pretty good for part of the year. He was indeed for part of the year. Actually, was was uh, incredible in uh, June and July. A 2.51 ERA in June, a 1.1 ERA in July. Uh, looked really, really good, and then suddenly it began to fade in August and September. Um, uh, ERA, not a bad strand rate, 59% strand rate in August, and the ERA went to 4.89, and then uh, a 42% hit rate, along with a, a bad strand rate in September, and we had a 7.09 ERA. But the thing to to uh, to know about all of that is the skills, overall skill support stayed very high even while the ERA went up. 141 BPV, 92 BPV in uh, June and July, and then 128 and 92 again in August, September. So my guess is what's going to happen here is that August, September fade is something that you can sell to your your friends at the draft table, uh, and they may think that, uh, in fact, here's another guy who's going to have trouble staying in the rotation and sustaining the uh, in the long haul. Or, uh, on the other hand, maybe the league caught up with him. Um, my guess is he ran into some bad luck in August and September, and he could be uh, really very good. Yeah, I'm always suspicious about guys who are getting outs without real good fastball velocity. I mean, he's a tricky guy, especially dealing with left-handers using the changeup, but that is exactly the kind of thing that leagues, the, the good hitters in Major League Baseball, do catch up with. You can only fool them for so long. That's, a, that's certainly true. I mean, if you don't have that good fastball and can't blow them, uh, you're right. The, uh, the, the, the tricky pitches, the fool pitches... Uh, eventually the good hitters to jump with. Although we're projecting 8.4 strikeouts per nine dominance rate, which is not bad, and uh, last year he wasn't horrendous. I mean, he was even better, 9.0 uh, uh, in 2011 in a short stint, 2012, 9.5 doms, so that's actually pretty good. It, it, it belies the idea that his fastball velocity is so low, but again, he was doing a lot of it with deception, and it's not the same thing as uh, Roger Clemens knocking them down at 99 miles an hour. Yeah, very definitely. The Cardinals have a, a pretty solid situation as far as their pitching rotation is concerned. The uh, interesting guy to look at here, I think, might be uh, Lance Lynn, who had a terrific rookie season. Yeah, Lance Lynn, you know, may have been a question mark uh, uh, a little while back, but Chris Carpenter looks like he's going to miss probably the whole season and uh, and may, in fact, be over have his career uh, over with. So Lance Lynn looks pretty solid, probably won't have to compete real hard uh, for a spot in the rotation because the Cardinals have a lot of other questions they need to answer. So uh, last season, Lance Lynn had a 3.78 ERA. Uh, he did struggle in August, a 6.66 ERA in August, 1.91 whip. And so that really inflated his overall stats, that, that one bad month. But uh, here's a guy with a 9.2 DOM, um, 3.58 XERA, a lot of upside and growth trends in both command and dominance at age 26. Uh, so he, really, I think Lance Lynn is, a, is someone you want to target uh, for 2013, especially in a keeper league. I was going to say especially in a keeper league because he's 26 coming into his 
prime. Uh, the baseball forecaster says his upside could be a, an ERA in the low 320s and uh, maybe 200 strikeouts. Not bad. Right. No, not bad at all. Something, uh, something you'd be glad to have as part of your rotation. And finally, the Pirates rotation. Uh, I don't know if it's as big a disaster as it has been over the years, but uh, it's got Wandy Rodriguez at the top. He's 34. A.J. Burnett is 36. So the number three spot goes to James McDonald. And James McDonald, for the first part of last year, looked like a Cy Young candidate. And in the second part of the year, not so much. Yeah, you know, and so the question is, who do we get this year? Do we get the first half? Do we get the second half? Um, his his um, XCRA 3.59 in the first half says that he was pitching a little better than his uh, he had a little bit of luck and, and uh, didn't quite deserve the uh, the low under three ERA that he got. Um, second half uh, had had command issues. A five five point two control walked a lot of guys, and then the uh, the ERA went up to six point four eight in the second half. And so the question is, is he going to be able to uh, maintain his control enough to uh, to do a decent job? And I think what's a little scary in looking at McDonald is that. Um, First half control, 2.4. Second half control, 5.2. That 5.2 is a lot closer to his historic numbers than the excellent control he produced in the first half. So I'd be a little scared of Jane McDonald going into the season based on his history uh, and based on what we saw in the second half last year. Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes regularly at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com director and writer Jock Thompson. Jocko, welcome back. Jock, welcome back to the show. Thanks, PD. Appreciate it. Let's start with the, the big news. We'll be talking with Joe Sheehan about this a little later on as well. But the, uh, the big news was Seattle adding a lot of years and a whole pile of money to Felix Hernandez to stick around for the next seven years. Yeah, that was an interesting one, PD, because the deal was announced uh, at least a couple of weeks ago, but it just got confirmed and finalized today, primarily because of some wear and tear they found on Felix's elbow in the physical. And that's it's one thing keeper owners really need to take a to, to keep an eye on because Felix's velocity has been dropping over the past four or five years. It's it's down from ninety six down to just a touch over ninety two. And he's had a workload of over two hundred and thirty innings for the last four seasons in a row. It is a lot of innings, but they've been pretty solid innings. You know, when you look at his XERAs, they they started uh, in 2008. He had a fairly poor year at 378 for an expected earned run average. But after that, 332, 309, then around 320. Are we that concerned that this is going to be a big drop-off? And I guess the second half last year might have been a bit of an indication. Well, that's the big question. He, F- Felix finished very poorly. He, uh, he had an ERA of over six in his last uh, six starts. But here's why you have to look under the stats. Uh, Felix, for the first time all during his career, threw more change-ups than he did fastballs last year. Now, that's not a, you know, a, a bad sign in itself. He, he obviously knows how to pitch. But the one guy I'm thinking of um, in terms of Felix right now is Dan Heron, who's, whose velocity also dropped for about four years in a row. And he pitched. he averaged about... 225 innings uh, a year for about seven years before last year. And finally, his fastball dropped to the point where he just wasn't, uh, he, he, he just wasn't that effective anymore. He lost a little bit of command. And if, if you look at Felix's, the, the change in Felix's repertoire, um, this strikes me as something very similar to, to Heron. If, if his fastball drops any more, I think we're going to see some decline. The, the, question, the question that we're asking here, is, as you're mentioning, is how fast will the decline, the decline come? 
how exactly how worried are you about Felix Hernandez? How high would you go in a bidding situation? I'm not worried about him at all in the short term. I think he's going to be fine this year. Um, and in fact, I think if you're if you're a wannabe Felix owner, you can use all of the things that we've just talked about and the fact that uh, safe coast fences are coming in, and you can probably scare up a pretty good deal on on uh, Felix. I, I think he's going to be fine this year. But if you're in a keeper league, I would be very hesitant to extend him more than a couple of years. Another big piece of news came uh, with Cleveland. They signed maybe the last remaining big-name free agent in Michael Bourne, uh, figures to slot into center field. How do you like this signing as a fantasy deal, and what can we expect from Michael Bourne this year? I like Michael Bourne. I mean, if you look at his uh, his statistics, uh, his talk about a guy who hasn't deteriorated either. He's 30 years old. And his speed is pretty much the same. Uh, he stole 42 bases last year, and that's that's his primary value as a, as, a, as a fantasy owner. He doesn't have much power. He gets on base at a pretty good clip, 10% last year. I think he's going to be fine in the American League. A, again, at age 30, the only question you have to have if you're a keeper owner is two, three years from now, is he going to have that same speed? Uh, and and also, of course, what happens to Cleveland's outfield right now? Um, it, I, it, it's the kind of move that... Uh, um, they, they had a bunch of center fielders in their outfield uh, anyway. And is this going to push uh, Nick Swisher to first base? And what are the ramifications for the other players on the Cleveland roster? I sure wouldn't want to be the guy who owns Matt Laporta for sure. And uh, and with uh, Drew Stubbs also arriving on the scene, yeah, there's going to be a, a few too many guys for spots that are available. Yeah, exactly. And Ezekiel Carrera, there's another speedster that uh, – people at least were looking at as a, as a sleeper to steal 30 bases. He's obviously going to be on the outside looking in with this acquisition. One of the things that some Cleveland beat writers are talking about is the fact that Cleveland might be putting stubs on the trade market, but uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. We're projecting uh, Michael Bourne will steal almost 50 bases this year. Does that strike you as, as high? No, um, I frankly, I'm not familiar with, uh, with, with Cleveland in terms of how often they'll run their players but um, obviously, if they're buying Michael Bourne, they're buying him for defense and stolen bases because that's what he does. Yeah, and stick him at the top of the order and hope that they can score some runs because they don't have a lot of power still, so maybe they'd like to have a guy who can score from first on a double, that kind of thing. Uh, Ryan Madsen, we talked about Ryan Madsen last week, Jock. Uh, the Los Angeles signed him uh, apparently to be the closer over Ernesto Frieri, but there's been some uh, news about that on that front. They've shut down Mats, and he's had some pain throwing. He'd actually been shut down 13 days before they announced it, before they did an MRI. Now, the MRI came back clean. There's just some inflammation there, but he's going to be shut down for another week. And what that means is, uh, in terms of timing, is that it's, it's going to be unlikely that he makes it back before the beginning of May. So he could be out a good three, four weeks. And this means that uh, Ernesto Frieri is going to get uh, uh, a longer time to maybe restake his claim to the closer role. And you and I talked about Frieri last last week and how he uh, he dominated when he first came over to the Angels. He, he I think he pitched 26 scoreless innings yep. in a row, and he was pretty much untouchable. And then he had some trouble in the second half, and I did a little research on him. Frieri was throwing his fastball over 60% of the time. Now, the news on Frieri this offseason is that he's working on a secondary pitch that, that will hopefully make him more effective. He's working on a changeup, but he's going to have to find something other than that fastball if he wants to be a closer. And if he doesn't, there's not like the uh, Angels lack for alternatives. They had a lot of guys get saves last year, and the guy who got the least of them might be the most intriguing in Kevin Jepsen. 
Yeah, I like Kevin Jepsen. Uh, I don't know if he'll ever be a closer. Um, his his ground ball ratio last year wasn't quite as good as it had been in previous years. But the great thing about Jepsen is that he's healthy. He's at a prime age. He really made a nice comeback last year. And and as you're noting, and I watched out here in California, he cleaned up at least a couple of Frieri's late season messes. And if and if you look at what Mike Sosha did last year, I, I talk about an old dog learning new tricks. There was a point in time where the Angel bullpen was at its at its maximum best, where he was actually mixing and matching Downs and Frieri uh, on a lefty-righty basis uh, to get saves, and Scott Downs got nine saves. And now we've also got he's also got Sean Burnett to go to. Sean Burnett has had uh, a few closing opportunities over the last two three seasons. I can see if Frieri is out, or I'm sorry, if Madsen is out for any any period of time i could see Sosha going to a closer by committee here you know it's just some it's something it's an idea whose time has come and and still a lot of managers uh, will not accept it but a guy like mike Sosha, being an old school type of manager if he grabs onto it and especially if the angels do well it could really upset the whole balance of how saves get apportioned because i mean if you're a general manager and you look at a successful team like the angels and they go this route it means you can pay your supposed closer bullpen rates like everybody else and get the results by mixing and matching as you said this has uh, real interesting ramifications in the longer term uh, speaking of that uh, we have Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com for a long time has been the starting pitching buyer's guide columnist and man he does a terrific job Jock don't you know and uh, one of the guys he talked about in his most recent column which was looking at the deep sides of rotations on major league clubs he was looking at guys like uh, rubby de la rosa in boston this is an interesting uh, guy to look at yeah he's a real interesting guy I, I got to watch him out here pd because he was with the dodgers before he was traded to uh, boston late last year and um the only problem i saw with with ruby when he was pitching this was a couple of years ago before his tommy john surgery um his command would fade in and out but when it was on he just toyed with major league hitters i mean he he came at you with 95 96 mile an hour stuff um he he could add and subtract from his fastball he's got a good ground ball profile um with buckles already heard and dubron and and john lackey question marks as soon as ruby shows any consistency with his command he's likely going to be in boston i mean it, it could be any time it could be in may it could be in august but but this is a guy. If you're in a keeper league, I would I would snap up in a hurry. I really like. Yeah, he him. looks like a terrific reserve round pick. If uh, people in your league aren't aware, I mean, not so much in a mixed league, but definitely in a in a single league format. Rubby De La Rosa, guys like this, those fifth and sixth starters can really pay dividends for a buck or a twenty second round pick. Yeah, he could he could start the year in Pawtucket for sure. I mean, he's he's only he only pitched uh, a few innings last year after coming back from from Tommy John. And he may need a, a month or two in the minors, but but this is a guy who, when he was up with the Dodgers in 60 innings, had an ERA of 3.71, and he struck out almost nine batters a game. So uh, it's it's not like he looked like he was overmatched a couple of years ago when he was in the majors. The big news in Detroit seems to be that everybody knows Rick Porcello is going to get traded. The uh, Tigers certainly have some... Uh, issues that they could possibly address with their pitching depth. Right now, Drew Smiley's the fifth or sixth guy, depending on how you slot Porcello in there. But if Porcello goes, Smiley could be a, a guy to be interested in. Yeah, this is another uh, another one of uh, Nick Rand's picks. Um, Smiley put up a terrific uh, 99 inning performance last year. I mean, his 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 strikeout per nine inning was uh, at 8.5, and he had a nice uh, 3.0 command. Um, and he was really solid before an inter- intercoastal strain landed him on the DL in mid-July. 
And of course, the acquisition of Anibal Sanchez kept him from regaining his rotation spot in September. But it's it's interesting because most depth charts are showing him as the sixth starter this year, probably because Porcello has been there for so long. But but like you said, a lot of insiders think that Porcello is on the trade block and that Smiley is the most likely guy to take over that fifth starter spot as of opening day. And I like Smiley. I agree. He's he's very interesting. And Porcello is a poor fit for the for that uh, situation. He's a ground ball pitcher in a fly ball pitcher's park. The uh, infield defense that Detroit trots out there every day with uh, Cabrera at third and Fielder at first, even with uh, Johnny Peralta at shortstop, this is not going to make anybody forget the 1970 Orioles uh, as far as picking them and throwing guys out. So it could be that Rick Porcello could be a good target if he gets traded and not so much if he stays in Detroit. Absolutely. Uh, Porcello was really hurt by the by the Detroit infielders last year. A ground ball pitcher like him, if he gets traded to a team with a good defense, he could have his best major league year yet. And in the meantime, Drew Smiley's the guy to grab. Jock, thanks very much for talking with us again. We'll catch up with you again next week when the spring training games have started. Okay, PD, same time next week. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. He's the team analyst for the three Southern California teams. He writes the keeper column. And uh, last I heard, he was also mopping floors. Uh, just we keep Jock very busy. It's, it's actually shameful. Uh, our feature interview with Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ron Chandler. As a listener to this Baseball HQ Radio podcast, you enjoy getting the winner's edge from BaseballHQ.com's information and insight. But the podcast is just the surface. Now I invite you to dive into BaseballHQ.com and to get the complete range of upgraded news, analysis, strategy, and tools for fantasy success. With your subscription, you'll get the latest on probable pitchers, daily matchups, and depth charts, the latest gaming strategies, extensive minor league scouting, up-to-the-minute player skills analysis, online tools you can tailor to your league, and our unsurpassed fantasy baseball research. Joining the BaseballHQ.com community also includes our subscriber forums, sharing the wisdom of thousands of other serious fantasy players and without the name-calling. Plus, we've upgraded our news feed to get you the information you need faster than ever before. Find out about our new flexible subscription plans with a draft prep package or year-long access. Come dive into BaseballHQ.com today. Let me say something about greenies. First of all, greenies were not performance enhancers. At the best, they allowed a guy with a hangover or somebody who didn't get any sleep that night to be more alert, and he was able to play up to his normal ability. So they were performance enablers. They were not performance enhancers. They did not they did not make him a better player than he ordinarily would. That's the difference between amphetamines and these uh, uh, human growth hormones and, and steroids. I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that's okay. I, I think there should be a ban on amphetamines too because they're not healthy but they have to be put into a different category uh, you know than than the uh, human growth hormones they're, they're probably something a little bit better than a cup of coffee in terms of the stimulation that you get so I think you, you need to uh, baseball needs to make a distinction there baseball HQ radio And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. A pleasure now to be joined 
by Joe Sheehan, past guest on the show. Always good to talk with Joe, who's the uh, presenter of the Joe Sheehan newsletter. One of the best things you can ever read and certainly the best bargain in all of baseball writing. Joe Sheehan, how you doing? Good, Patrick. How you doing? Just getting ready for uh, some warm weather, some spring baseball, man. I'm excited for it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they're starting up in a week's time. I think spring training games start on the 22nd, I believe. Yeah, the nice thing about the World Baseball Classic is it kind of pushes the schedule forward a little bit because they've got to get that. They got to squeeze that into March. So as baseball fans, we benefit. It's like the groundhog saw his baseball shadow a little early. Yeah, that's right. Uh, before we get started, what do you think of the World Baseball Classic? I think as long as you look at it as a marketing event and not as the World Cup of baseball, you just you can't take it as that. It's it's not going to be, you know, say the World Cup or the Olympics or the World Basketball Championships. It's it's designed to get baseball to be popular in South Africa and Brazil and China. It's not about figuring out who's got the best team. I mean, you just you're never going to see the United States or the Dominican Republic take it as seriously as Cuba and Japan do, just because of the, the way the calendar falls, the nature of those teams, those, those nations, the relative value they place on the WBC. So I think it's a fun event, but it doesn't bother me if Justin Verlander pulls out or Felix Hernandez pulls out, because it's not about those guys. Do you think it'll ever achieve that kind of stature, the same as the World Cup or the other big events? Uh, I'm thinking the Olympic ice hockey tournament is a huge thing, especially in the hockey-playing countries. And, the, and of course, the World Cup is, is even bigger, especially in the soccer-playing countries. It seems somewhat anomalous that, the, uh, that this attempt to make a baseball event is sort of yawned at by the major baseball-playing countries. Well, it's beyond that because of the timing. Uh, you, you just uh, when you put it in March, you've got this problem of players that are getting ready to play in the best baseball league in the world, MLB, aren't really ramped up to play highly competitive games. Uh, also, too, I mean, to something that baseball doesn't really lend itself to this type of format. So you, you're going to have a little problem with that anyway. But I remember going to the U.S. Mexico game in the first World Baseball, baseball Classic at Chase Field. And I want to say the U.S. used a starting pitcher for two innings and then seven relievers for an inning each. And that's not something, because it's a spring training game. You're not stretching guys out. Even if Verlander was pitching, I don't think you'd see him go out there and throw seven innings. So it's always going to live in the shadow of MLB spring training. If you ever wanted it to be a real thing, you'd almost have to do, uh, I believe the NHL, I don't know if they're still doing this, but they would carve out three weeks in the middle of the schedule and stop the season, and send everybody to Minsk or wherever the Winter Olympics happen to be that year, play the tournament with all the best players, and then go back to your regular season. Until MLB is prepared to do that, and I don't think they should actually do that, that would be the one way to make the WBC on a level with the Olympic hockey tournament, the Olympic basketball tournament, World Cup and soccer, etc. Why don't you think it's a good idea, though? It seems like it would be just something great to watch every four years, the best against the best. Yeah, I, I think that the disruption to the Major League Baseball season and the risk factors involved, remember, I, I don't know if it's ever happened in hockey, to be honest with you, if anybody's ever gotten hurt and, and, and kind of disrupted the season. But I think about the economics involved in a Major League Baseball season. And the specific issue of, of pitchers, particularly starting pitchers, and the stresses that are on those, on those guys, yeah. I think the risk factors in stopping the season, sending them somewhere in the world for a, a baseball tournament, and bringing some of them back. Plus, what do you do with the you know, 500, 700 guys who aren't going to this tournament? So, you know, it's great that you're Felix Hernandez and you get to go play in this, but what if you're Joe Saunders and nobody's picked you to put you on a team? What do you do for three weeks? 
But what if it's only one week every year and they built up to it so that in the first year you'd have some kind of 32-team elimination to knock it down to 16 and the next year maybe knock it down to 8 and the year after that knock it down to 4 and then in the fourth year, which would be the World Cup year or the big World Championship year, you could have those four teams in some kind of week-long round robin building up to a big, huge World Cup final of baseball and that way it wouldn't take three weeks every year if you spread it out a little more often. Why couldn't that work? I think it's Jason Stark of ESPN who came up with kind of a hybrid of, of what you're talking about here where you play the preliminary rounds in spring training and then instead of having the traditional all-star break, you would have the semifinals and the finals of the World Baseball Classic at midseason. So you wouldn't have the all-star game. And frankly, given the declining prestige of the all-star game, yeah. I actually like that as much as anything else. I think the World Baseball Classic semifinals and finals would be a better midseason event than the all-star game is now. It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan, the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, the latest name signing this week, in fact, one of the few names left in the free agent pool, came when Cleveland signed center fielder Michael Bourne. First of all, do you think this is a good signing for the Indians? I think for the Indians it's a good signing. They've got the money to spend. They didn't have to give up their first-round pick to do it. They actually have, they're going to lose their pick in the competitive balance round, which is kind of this bonus pick that you pick up along the way under the new CBA. Um, so the cost wasn't that great. They got them really for a bargain price. I was surprised that they had to go to a fourth year, given that you know it was so late in the winter and he was kind of dangling out there. But $12 million is less than what Victorino's making. It's actually less than what his new teammate Nick Swisher's making. It's significantly less than B.J. Upton's making. So relative to what the, the, the market had dictated the value of these outfielders, I thought it was a really good uh, price for him. I don't love Michael Bourne as a player. Um, the combination of being a high strikeout, low power guy means that I think his offense is at risk. He, if he's not getting 30 infield hits a year, if he goes from hitting 280 to 260, the on-base percentage drops, I think there's definitely a concern as to what the value is going to be. But for where the Indians are, and for what they need, particularly on defense, I like the move for them. Yeah, you mentioned uh, his defense in your column about this, and say that might be the real value that he brings to the Indians. Absolutely, he was the him or Jason Hayward was the be, was the best defensive outfielder in uh, were the best defensive outfielder in uh, in the game last year. Michael Bourne, tremendous speed. We know because he steals bases. He has the range. Actually, a halfway decent arm. And you look at the defensive numbers, and he rated out fantastically, uh, particularly last year, but also over the last couple of years. The Indians last year had a very poor outfield defense behind a pitching staff that put a lot of balls in play. If you add doubles and triples together, uh, the Indians gave up more doubles plus triples than any other team in the American League. Now that's part of the pitching and it's part of the defense. Well, it's expensive to upgrade your pitching staff. And they've tried to go out this year. They've traded for Trevor Bauer. They've signed Brett Myers. It's a backdoor way to get there, though, is to add a better defense. And by replacing Shinsu Chu and Shelley Duncan with Swisher, Bourne, possibly Drew Stubbs. You know, Michael Brantley might move from center to left. I think that'll upgrade the defense. You could make an argument, and if you just run the numbers from last year, you just go year over year, there'd be a 50-run defense in the, quality of the def- in the quality of the outfield defense. That's five wins just by doing it that way. Now, it doesn't always work out that way, but you see the point here. You can Just by putting a better outfield defense out there, you can make your team that much better. Yeah, it seems like getting Shelly Duncan out of the outfield is practically worth 50 runs all by itself. Yeah, just getting him anywhere, out of the outfield, out of the first base and DH spots, out of the organization, very helpful. Now, you mentioned that Bourne can run. Do you think he's a decent target for fantasy owners, um, because of the bags at least? Well, it 
it's interesting. Base stealers do tend to steal fewer bases as they make that turn into their 30s. This is where Bourne is going to. I look at Bourne as somebody who probably isn't going to have those 50 and 60 steal seasons any longer. Terry Francona wasn't much of a stolen base guy. At the same time, Jacoby Ellsbury did steal 70 with him. I think of Ellsbury as being a bit of an outlier in that category. So right. combining the fact that I don't think Bourne is going to get on base as much as Ellsbury did, the age factor and the manager, I think Bourne is a good but not a great fantasy pickup. You've got to expect 25 to 35 steals going forward, maybe 90 runs versus scoring 100. I would just knock him down in general. Plus, that's a really good pitcher's bark in Cleveland. Joe, in another column you wrote about having been asked to submit your preseason picks for the most valuable players in each league, Cy Youngs and so forth, and uh, you said that the pick about which you are most confident and the one that seems most surprising, you chose Bryce Harper as your National League MVP. Why'd you go that route? Yeah, I look at Harper as uh, there's a history involved with this. If you look at the players who have played regularly and reasonably well at the age of 19 years old, there are 11 guys to post a one-war win-above-replacement season at the age of 19. Uh, he was the he was the 12th. Manny Machado actually last year was was the 11th was the 13th. If you compare all, take a look at all those guys. The level of improvement they showed the next year, they, nine of them improved. And if you limit it just to Harper's true comps, take the eight of them that were outfielders. Seven of those guys improved, and half of that pool went on to be like an MVP caliber player. You're talking about Ty Cobb and Mickey Mantle and a couple of other guys. If you're good enough to be a good player in the major leagues at age 19, there's an excellent chance you're going to improve to being one of the best players in the league at age 20. So just historically, the comps for Harper dictate that Harper's going to take a big step forward. Now, there's some other things. I love the way Harper went through last year. Came into the league like a house on fire, didn't hit for two months, but Davey Johnson stuck with him. And in the last six weeks of the season, he really bounced back. And when you see a young player go through that kind of cycle where he doesn't just fall off a cliff at the end of the year, he actually kind of bounces back and plays well, I love that. The combination of talent and experience. I tend to talk about this more with guys who are in their early 20s and mid-20s where you have you know 2,000 at-bats on a player who's 24, 25 years old. I'm thinking about a guy like Justin Upton going into this year. But Harper, and again, you look at the history of those guys, when guys get into the majors that young and they get that kind of experience early and they show that they're not overwhelmed by the league, it's an explosive combination. I think Harper is going to be the NL MVP this year. And you've mentioned in your newsletter, and I've spoken with you uh, at Arizona and other places, that one of the basic truisms of looking at how to evaluate players is the ability to show an adjustment the the ability of a pitcher to adjust to the hitters and the hitters to adjust to the pitchers and the pattern you talked about in 2012 that was it seems like a classic example of Bryce Harper saying uh, I, I started well they adjusted to me and I adjusted back and that's a big difference between a guy like Bryce Harper and a lot of other guys who never quite managed that second adjustment and the and the adjustments that we know are going to have to come down the road yeah the fact that we know he was able to kind of arrest this decline in his stats and he did he had 220 without much power with a sub 300 OBP for about a 50 game stretch in the middle of last year and you know credit Davey Johnson too for sticking with him um, and, and for not kind of running away from the rookie. Now, I think the next phase for Harper is going to be kind of a... He, there's things he still has to learn. 
one of the things I think that's going to help him this year is that he won't have to. He was a little overmatched playing center field last year. Uh, remember, he was a catcher as recently as two years ago. He hasn't played the outfield very much, and he was awkward out there. The signing, uh, excuse me, the trade for Denard Span means that Harper will be playing left field, and not having to do OJT in center. I think playing one outfield position all the time is going to be a huge boon for his development. He's going to have to learn to, learn to hit left-handers. He's still going to have to learn how to kind of control that aggression on the bases. There's development that's going to have to happen. But when you just look at what he did with it, and, and let's face it, I mean, not, not to reopen the Trout-Cabrera debate, but you win the MVP with your bat. So as long as Harper's hitting, some of the other stuff isn't going to really matter as much. And I think Harper's simply going to absolutely rake good not fantastic plate discipline by all means last year, but incredibly impressive for a 19-year-old in his second professional season. That should get better. The comp I like best for go for him next year, if you just want to pick one guy, it's what King Griffey Jr. did going from 1989 to 1990, when Griffey held his own as a 19-year-old and then jumped forward, hit 22 homers, hit 300 in 1990, and then went on to be a great player. I think Harper has that kind of jump in him, where you go from being a five-win player to a seven-win player, which makes you an MVP candidate. So you mentioned Mike Trout. In the long run, do you want Bryce Harper? Do you want Mike Trout for a career? And then what about just for this year coming? To some extent, it depends on what I'm playing. I mean, we're talking about fantasy here, and if center field matters... And if defense matters, I think you can build a case for Trout. Patrick, I was my, my framework for all of this is Strat. I've been playing Stratomatics for 30 years. I haven't played as much in recent years, but I still get the cards. And I think about the two players' value. Um, I think Harper is going to be the better baseball player. I think Harper is going to have the better career in real baseball. But the difference between a center fielder who's a one, which is the best defensive rating, and a left fielder who might eventually be a one, but for now isn't going to have that kind of defensive uh, value, is probably enough to swing it to Trout. But if it's a traditional fantasy format where defense doesn't matter, where the difference between center field and left field doesn't matter as much, I will take Harper. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe, another big signing a couple of weeks ago now. The Mariners extended King Felix Hernandez as part of a fairly substantial makeover of the entire roster. What do you think of this signing, and, and what do you think of what the Mariners have been doing in the offseason? Because some, I get the sense that you don't think the two things jibe that well. There's always risk with pitchers. Um... You know, even in the in the run up to him signing this contract, there were questions about his elbow, and the Mariners have actually built some stuff into the contract to kind of insure them a little bit against uh, an, an elbow injury for Felix Hernandez. It's almost as if they feel there's an inevitability to it. As far as the price of the contract, twenty five million dollars a year, you know, seven. It's actually a five and one thirty five, so it's twenty seven million dollars a year extension onto the two years that they're 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 eventually tearing up. But essentially, it's five and one thirty five extension. And, you know, that's not unreasonable. Um, when you look at Granke, Hamels, uh, getting, what was it, about $24 million a year each, it's not unreasonable for me to say that Hernandez would get $27 million. I think the Mariners, to some extent, had to do this. There's a legitimacy issue for them. Uh, yeah. 11 years without a postseason appearance, appearance. Felix Hernandez, and this is maybe my favorite stat of the offseason, there are 58 players who have 30 wins above replacement in their career, active players. Felix Hernandez is the only one to never appear in a postseason game. In fact, he's never appeared on a team that's won 90 games. He's only made maybe one or two relevant September starts in his career. In the era of short, small divisions, expanded playoffs, it is incredibly difficult 
to be a great player and to never have played in October. And that's who Felix Hernandez is right now. And frankly, he's not getting there in the next two years either. He's going to be a 40-war player without ever having pitched in the, in the postseason. From a, a baseball fan standpoint, and that's a very long answer, but from a baseball fan standpoint, that's bad. I want Felix Hernandez to have October moments because that's what we... We want that for players. We want them to have big moments. And he threw a perfect game last year. That's a beautiful thing. But if this means that Felix Hernandez ends up as the Ernie Banks of pitchers, I think that's that'll be kind of sad. And I, I think the Mariners are going to be good maybe by 2015. Uh, they've got a lot of pitching in the system. The question is going to be whether Jack Zarenchik or the Jack Zarenchik's replacement at the end of the year uh, can build an offense, starting with Ackley and Montero, and then, you know, they'll have a first round, some high first-round picks the next couple of years. They tried to get Upton this year. That's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to go outside the organization to get one or two top-tier hitters. And that's going to determine whether Felix Hernandez pitches in the playoffs or not, basically. So I guess you're not that impressed by the acquisitions of Raul Abanez, Mike Morris, Kendris Morales, guys like that? Well, I mean, the, the Mariners' problem is three straight years with a sub-300 team OBP. Adding low OBP sluggers like Morrison Morales doesn't actually help them. Now, Eric Carabell is a friend and, 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 and somebody who's just a tremendous baseball mind. did an article the other day at ESPN talking about can – I, I hope I can say that. I'm not going to tick off Ron by saying no. that. Um, uh, talking about how you know adding the power of Morse and, and, and Morales will help the offense enough to make it possibly a league average offense, and I just don't buy it. If you don't get guys on base – Hitting solo, a bunch of solo home runs really isn't going to elevate you to a really good offense. And there's, you know, they're bringing the fences in, but we still don't know what impact that's going to have. We also know that Morales and, and, and Morse are very bad defensive players, so that's not going to help them either. So, no, I'm not impressed by the offseason they've had. I think they'll be better this year. I, I believe that both Montero and Ackley are going to take big steps forward this year. I'm a big believer in Jesus Montero. I think the offense will be better for those guys being part of it, but I don't think one year having Morse and, and Morales on one-year deals helps them. Plus, even if I blue sky it and say they're the 13th best team in baseball, they're playing in a division with three of the top 10 teams in baseball. So at the absolute best, they're playing for, you know, they maybe got a 25% shot at a one-game playoff. Now, the 2013 Mariners aren't going to contend. I'm just thinking that uh, keeping Felix Hernandez out of the playoffs in a perverse way might be a good thing for fantasy owners, at least because it's that much less wear and tear on the arm over the over the over the years, and especially of those high profile, high leverage innings that you really hope a guy can avoid. That's a great point. I mean, if you think about you know some of the the, the wear and tear on a guy like CC Sabathia going deep into October for you know five straight years, uh, starting with the the well, actually go back to 2007. He actually has appeared in. Uh, I can do math, six straight postseasons now. The 2008 Brewers, the, and then the last four years with the Yankees, including 2009, where he you know, worked very deep into the postseason. So it's an absolute, you know, it's something to say. You know, if he saves 25 innings a year on his arm, that's 25 innings a year to the good for you owning him. And, you know, as fantasy, as fantasy players, we have absolutely no investment in the postseason. So that's a really good point. And you mentioned C.C. Sabathia in an earlier column of yours, Joe, about the Cleveland Indians and their lack of success at getting to the playoffs. And you mentioned four players, Sabathia was one of them, where you said that they had these pivotal decisions to make in roster management, and because they lacked uh, a certain amount of understanding of modern concepts, they made some decisions that weren't so good for the team. Um, I'm not sure I, I, I that that's a, a quote. I will say that the, the Indians... 
did a couple of things. They made a lot of they they didn't do make moves collectively that were bad. They made moves that were individually bad, and they struck out in in four cases. The the four key guys that they were building around at one point: Grady Sizemore, Travis Hafner, CC Sabathia, and Cliff Lee. All for for their purposes went bad. Sizemore. They gave him a five-year deal. The first three years of it were very good. The last two years, when he was most expensive, he was basically on a, he was hurt and he was bad when he played. And that's the guy they had chosen to be their franchise guy. And when your franchise guy goes south, I mean, think about Mark Pryor with the Cubs. The Cubs invested a lot in Mark Pryor. It went south, and they really kind of spiraled for a couple of years. The Indians invested a lot in Chris Sizemore. And when your number three hitter and center fielder essentially his career ends, that's a hard thing to come back from. They signed Travis Hafner. Um, the first deal was a three-year deal. It turned out to be a wonderful deal. He was a fantastic hitter. Then they signed him to a four-year extension worth, I believe it was like $52 million. And the problem with that is that you could look at Hafner even before that contract was signed and say, you know, this is a guy who's going to decline fast and hard because he's, he had old player skills. Talk about old player skills in terms of walks, um, hitting for power, not hitting for average, striking out, not being a good defensive player. And sure enough, Hafner declined from that incredible peak that he had and then also started missing games. He only played, I think it was 93 games a year under that four-year contract. So now you've got Sizemore and Hafner making $17 million a year and then just Hafner making 11 or whatever it was, 13 after it. And you're getting basically not nearly enough production for that. CC Sabathia... They got to the end of his deal, and they didn't think they could sign him as a free agent, which is probably right. But the trade they made for him, they just didn't get enough back in return. They got Matt Laporta. They got Zach Jackson. They got Michael Brantley, who five years later has finally turned into a player for them. And, you know, Brantley could continue to produce value, but you traded Sabathia and had to wait four years for a return. So that's essentially like getting nothing. And then a year later, Cliff Lee... They got nothing in that deal. Uh, Jason Knapp, Jason Donald, Lou Marson, and Carlos Carrasco. And Carrasco might be in the rotation this year, but again, we're talking about three years later, he's finally getting healthy and, and showing up in the rotation. So that's four players that, through bad luck, through possibly you know, some bad decisions, some bad trades, you gave you had all of this value in these four roster spots, and you eventually turned it into very little. And it also cost you a lot of money in terms of the investments in Sizemore and Hafner. And that's really why the Indians have had this five-year stretch of you know, kind of nothing. I mean, they, they were a game away from the World Series in 2007, and they've been under 500 ever since. Is it possible in modern baseball to get a return when you're dishing out a player like Sabathia? I mean, they, they knew this guy was at the end of his contract, but so did everybody else. And then you go and you, you hit the phones and you say, what will you give me for CC? And they say, well, I know you've got to deal him, so I'm not going to give you that much. Ditto for, for the Cliff Lee situation. Is it possible in this day and age when everybody knows everybody else's business and, and how the structures work? that you could dangle a player like Sabathia out there and get more than what they got? Were they lucky to get anything at all? I think you, I separate the two trades. Sabathia was only had you know 12 starts left before free agency. And when you're trading a guy in his walk year, there's definitely a recognition now that you know, you're really just not going to give up all that much for 12 starts. In the case of Lee, they were actually trading about a year and a half of the player. And that's a different case. I think you've got to try to you've got to expect to do better with a player like that. Remember, the Phillies got him and then flipped him to Seattle, who flipped him to Texas. If you're trading a year and a half, and that's why that's moved up. You know, Patrick, ten years ago, you didn't worry about trading a guy until he was 
approaching free agency. And now the deadline for flipping guys like that tends to be earlier because if you're not trading that year and a half of the player or two years of a player, you're just not going to get that much in return. So, yeah, I, I agree. It's very hard to trade players in their walk year. Um, what do we see this year? The, uh, the Grinky deal. The Brewers got Gene Segura, who's – I'm just not that big a fan. I don't think he's going to stay at shortstop. He's just heavy-legged, and I'm not, I don't see it. Um, I know he's rated highly by people who are better with prospects than I am, and I have a lot of respect for that. I, just, I don't think him very highly as a player. And they got an arm in that deal, too. And that's for, again, 12 starts. And if you compare that to trading a guy you know, two years out, two, if you trade a guy two years out, you're going to get a lot more return for him. If you think about when the Brewers acquired Zach Greinke, they traded Alcides Escobar, who's a starting shortstop and an excellent defensive player, Lorenzo Cain, who at the time was a pretty good center field prospect, Jake Odorizzi, who was, I believe, a first-round pick at the time, and there was a, a fourth player who, who, uh, whose name escapes me at the time. That's the kind of return you can expect two years out. Wow, this could be uh, construed as a depressing analysis because does it mean now that teams who have players they think are going to go uh, away in their walk year are going to be dealing them away even sooner than they do now and giving us less chance to get uh, invested in them as fans? Well, no, because I think the flip side of that is that the increased baseline revenues throughout the game and the increased revenue sharing throughout the game have given teams every opportunity to sign players. Uh, You can't throw a rock without seeing it, finding a team that, in some cases, perhaps to its detriment, has locked up a player long-term. The Twins with Morneau and Maurer, the Pirates with McCutcheon, the A's, you know, the A's went out and actually signed Ioannis Espedes, uh, was the Cuban player last year, he turned out to be a, a star. So all of these, you know, quote, small market teams now have plenty of money to spend on the players that they draft and develop. And that's why you've seen this spate of contracts, the Brewers with Ryan Braun, the Rockies with Troy Tulowitzki, where teams bring up their guys, they sign them to that first contract, like a year into their, their career, and then they go back three years later, well in advance of free agency, and they go, look, let's lock you up long-term, very long-term. Evan Longoria in Tampa Bay. So, Patrick, some guys are going to slip through the cracks, Granke being one of them. But more and more, if a team wants to keep a player, they absolutely can afford to do so. And then they just have to hope it doesn't turn out to be Grady Sizemore. At Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan. And Joe, uh, every week I ask our feature guests to pick some players to target or to avoid for the coming season in fantasy terms. So let's start with the American League. How about a hitter that you think is a guy to put your sights on? Well, I mentioned him earlier in the podcast. Uh, I'm a big believer in Jesus Montero. I know he was very impressive last year. There was a very strange park factor going on in Seattle last year, even over above it being a good pitcher's park. Um, he struggled with catching. I think he'll catch a little bit less this year, um, and eventually will move out from behind the plate. But I look for him to take a step forward this year. This is a guy who did nothing but hit in the Yankee system, and there's no reason to believe that he can't be a 290 to 300 hitter with power. Maybe not the walk rate you're looking for, but he's a guy who, because of the, the, the poor year last year, could be a value in some leagues. Uh, who's who's going to catch in Seattle if it isn't him With now that they ship John Jaso out? They signed Shopik, Kelly Shopik, and I guess he'll get some of the playing time. I'm not sure how you distribute the playing time between two right-handed hitting catchers like that, but 
you know, that's Eric Wedge's job, I guess. But uh, no, I think Montero's going to catch some. But they really, everything you hear says he's a bad receiver, and they just don't like him back there. And what will eventually happen is they'll just decide, you know, if he doesn't hit this year, if he doesn't really take that step forward, they might decide, let's get him out from behind the plate because it might be hindering his catching. Carlos Delgado, I think, is the, probably the best example of that. Right. Carlos Delgado yeah. reached the majors as a catcher, actually caught on and off for about a year, and then they got him out from behind the plate, and his bat really took off. In the National League, how about a hitter that you really like? Uh, I'm going to say the name improperly since I don't really quite know how to pronounce it, but uh, the uh, Padres have an infielder named Jed Yorko, uh, G-Y-O-R-K-O. He doesn't really have a position, and it's an open question right now where he's actually going to play. Obviously, third base is taken with Headley. He's not a shortstop, so it'll be him and kind of Logan Forsythe fighting for playing time at second base. He could conceivably get some time at first if Yonder Alonso were to falter. But the one thing we know is that when he plays, he's going to hit. And he's the guy I would look for as kind of a long-shot rookie to step up. That's another team that's bringing in the fences, so that'll be a better part to hit in as well. As far as the guy who's in the majors, I'll just throw out my annual mention of Brandon Belt, who at times last year looked like the guy we thought he was going to be two years ago. And it just let's hope at this point that he's gotten through all the playing time issues and that... Uh, uh, Bruce Bochy will just let him play first base every day. If he does, he'll hit 300 with 15, 20 homers. And in his minor league minute, Rob Gordon of BaseballHQ.com will be talking about Jed Giorco. And I did hear that Bruce Bochy said that Brandon Belt will get some at-bats not only at first base, but when Buster Posey comes out from behind the plate to play first, that Brandon Belt will see some time in left field. So moving on, how about an American League pitcher you have your eye on? I don't know if this qualifies as a sleeper, but John Lester had one of those years last year that's just not going to be repeated. Um, just everything went wrong for him, and I love him this year. I think the fundamental skills are still there, and I think he bounces back to being the 3.3, 3.4 ERA guy with 200 strikeouts that we've expected him to be all along. Uh, if he slips in your draft, and he, I will say this, in the mocks that I've done so far, he hasn't slipped as far as I'd hoped he would. The other name I'll throw out is, and this guy's in the news as we're talking about this today, Trevor Bauer, came over from Arizona in the uh, the, the three-way deal that sent Shinsu Chu to Cincinnati. He'll be part of that Indians rotation. And as I mentioned earlier, the Indians putting a better defense on the field are now not a bad place for a young starter to break in. How about a National League pitcher that you like? I like a lot, actually. The hardest part was narrowing this down for you. Uh, Henderson Alvarez in Miami. I lo- I got to see him uh, up close at the end of last year. He uh, basically shut down the Yankees over over six innings. He had one bad inning and then just completely shut down the Yankees. He just stri- you know, a good hard fastball keeps down in the zone, generates a lot of ground balls. A little bit like Chen Ming Wong in that, despite the fact that he has velocity, um, he doesn't get a lot of strikeouts, but he just. Pounds the strike zone and gets ground balls. I love him uh, moving to the NL East, moving to that ballpark. I mean, obviously, you know, we don't know what they're going to look like this year. The Marlins going through a lot of transition, but I love Henderson Alvarez this year. Now let's look at some players you're going to avoid. Uh, how about an American League hitter you think is going to be overdrafted, overrated? From what I can see so far, people believe in Mark Trumbo a lot more than they should. Mark Trumbo really had about seven good weeks last year and then went back to being Mark Trumbo. Big platoon split issues, massive problems controlling the strike zone, no defensive skill. I think he eventually gets squeezed out of playing time in uh, in Anaheim as they figure out they've got to get Peter, Peter Borges on the field, and the domino effect of that is going to cost Trumbo. Trumbo's not going to hit as well, and when that happens, it's going to cost him playing time. And I think a lot of people drafting him in single-digit rounds are going to be disappointed. How about a National League hitter you're going to avoid? 
Uh, probably Andre Ethier. Uh, Andre Ethier, again, you know, is a guy who at the time he signed that big extension last year, he was having the best six weeks he'd had in a long time. And almost before the ink was dry on the contract, he went back to being kind of the middling 275, 11 homer type hitter that he's been for a few years now. Doesn't bring any defensive value, doesn't run for you. I, I, he's the kind of guy that, I guess if your league is deep enough, he provides value because he plays every day. But if I'm in any kind of reasonable depth league, a 12 or even a 15 NFBC type league, give me somebody who is going to provide me a little bit more upside and a little bit of help in, in more categories. Uh, I won't be taking Ethier in just about any format. And on the pitching side, an American League pitcher that you're going to avoid? You know, you, when you ask this question, you tend to think more of starters. Uh, Jim Johnson is the guy. I you know, I know he led the league in saves last year, and he, he had you know pretty good peripherals, but he doesn't strike anybody out. And generally speaking, one-inning relievers who don't strike out 25% of the hitters they're facing are a a, a bear market. Uh, there was a time when they were you know, the closers in the Doug Jones mode, but in modern baseball, those guys just can't get away with it. So I think Jim Johnson is in line for a huge regression this year. I think the year will jump up at least a run and a half, and there's a decent chance he loses some save opportunities as the year goes on. And finally, a National League pitcher that you're going to avoid. You know, I'll throw Brandon League out again as a guy who starts the year as a closer, but if he's the third best pitcher in that, that bullpen, I'd be surprised. If Kenley Jansen is over the heart issues that threatened him at the end of last year, I think he ends up back in that role. The other guy I want to mention here is Aroldis Chapman. I love Aroldis Chapman as a talent, but there seems to be a lack of clarity as to his role as we head to spring training. They'd like to make him a starter. I'm not sure he has the third pitch to be a starter, and it's a completely different role than the one he had last year. Chapman could end up in kind of this no-man's land where he's not getting wins and he's not getting saves, and because he's adjusting to a new role, it's affecting his effectiveness. So as great as he was last year, he's somebody I'd avoid. All right, Joe, before we let you go, uh, who's your favorite and maybe a sleeper pick in March Madness? I want to, as we're talking about this, uh, the Gonzaga St. Mary's game is coming up tonight, and uh, I, I, everybody knows about Gonzaga. Obviously, they're a top five team now. I want to get a good look at St. Mary's. Their numbers are actually really good. You look at some of the advanced metrics. Uh, senior point guard Matthew Delavadova has really been one of the more underrated players in college the last few years. They play defense like nobody's business. Now they don't have the quality wins. Uh, they just they, they've had a couple of opportunities that have let slip through their fingers. The best win is probably a one point home win over over Harvard. But if they can pick off Gonzaga, uh, they're going to get a, a crack at Creighton at home and bracket busters. Get into the tournament. I really think they'd be incredibly dangerous. It's like a 10 or an 11 seed. And leaving aside sleeper questions, who do you think is actually going to win the tournament? It, this is the most wide-open year we've had in a while. Um, it if is. Will Yegeti comes back for Florida, I'd make them the favorite. If he doesn't, oh, man, it's, real, it's incredibly hard to say. I, everybody's on Miami right now, and granted, they've looked very, very good in some tough spots. I just worry if they're, they're about them peaking too soon. Uh, obviously, we know Jim Laranega is a fantastic coach. He took George Mason to the Final Four a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, Indiana. I, I have to say that if you just gave me the Big Ten as a as a as a, as a I guess a, a ticket, and okay, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan State, Wisconsin. Just give me any one of those. I don't know which of them, but if I had to guess right now, I'd say the national champion will come out of the Big Ten. Not a bad bet. Joe, uh, where can our listeners get more of your observations and analysis, especially about baseball? 
Uh, at Joe underscore Sheehan on Twitter is really the best place to find out everything that I'm working on at any given, at any given time. The underscore is important. There's a nice man from St. Louis uh, who got to Twitter before I did, and he's at Joe Sheehan without it, and he gets a lot of people yelling at him who think they're yelling at me. So at <laughs> Joe underscore Sheehan. Uh, you can check out uh, joshean.com as well as joshianbaseball.blogspot.com. And you'll find out most of the news about the newsletter or, or media appearances that I might be doing, uh, whether it's you know, MLB Network or NBC Sportsnet, uh, a lot of the radio that I do, or podcasts that, that might be coming up, uh, work that I do in Sports Illustrated or sportsillustrated.com. I do want to mention the newsletter. Uh, people can check that out, joshean.com. Right now, I'm running uh, this kind of experiment. The newsletter costs twenty four ninety five for the for the year from February first to January thirty first of next year. Right now, for four ninety five, you can get the newsletter for thirty days. Check it out. If you like it at the end of the thirty day period, just pay the balance of the twenty bucks and you're good for the year. It's a great way to kind of dip your toe in and see what I'm all about for a month while figuring out if you want to pay the rest. So you can get the information about that either through the Twitter feed or through joshian.com. And I'll say what I've said before, Joe. Uh, I know you're a friend of mine, and people say, yeah, you're just talking nice about him because he's on your show and because you know him and, and have hung around with him and stuff. I will say that if I didn't know Joe Sheehan from Page 8, the Joe Sheehan newsletter is just a fantastic bargain. It's it's well-written if you like good writing. It's full of good information if you like good information and combining the two. Hey, hell, it's a home run for 25 bucks. Honest to heaven, you can't do better. Joe, thanks very much for joining us here again this week. We'll catch up with you again during the year, I hope. Thanks, Patrick. Take it easy. Joe Sheehan writes the Joe Sheehan Newsletter. As I said, it's one of the great bargains for fantasy owners and baseball fans in general. Joe also writes for a whole bunch of other uh, outlets, Sports Illustrated Magazine, Sports Illustrated on the, Online, just all over the place. You can't get enough of Joe Sheehan because he's real smart. We'll have our regular f- commentaries coming up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Ron Chandler here. I've been around fantasy baseball a long time, and I've learned that the key to success is the willingness to make bold moves. That's why I'm encouraging you to make a bold move of your own by joining us at one of our BaseballHQ.com first pitch forums in February and March. This year's forum theme is Bold Statements. That means you'll hear experts from BaseballHQ.com and other sites making provocative and out-of-the-box analysis about the player pool, playing time situations, players with hidden skills, the saves race, stocking your farm team, draft perspectives, and a whole lot more. More than three hours of bold statements, bold predictions, and bold strategies to help you win. We'll have forums in Los Angeles and San Francisco coming right up in mid-February, Chicago on February 23rd, Baltimore, D.C. area on March 1st, New York City area March 2nd, and Boston on March 3rd. Go to BaseballHQ.com and click on the First Pitch Forums link in the right column for more information and to book your spot. Act now and you'll get a 20% discount on your already low registration. Need another encouragement? I'll be kicking things off by telling you why not to draft Mike Trout. The BaseballHQ.com First Pitch Forums. See you there. Thank you very much. I gotta... I gotta thank all of you. All the fans... Here in San Francisco, road and home 
It's been fantastic. I want to thank you all. I got to thank my teammates for their support. Through all this, you guys have been strong and you've given me all the support in the world. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. Thank you. I got to thank my family, my mother, my wife Liz, my kids, Nikolai, Shakari, and Asia. I'm glad I did it before you guys went to school. Thanks for being here. I got to thank the Washington Nationals for your support. Thank you for understanding this day. It means a lot to me. My dad. Thank you for everything. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler on deck with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about San Diego infield prospect Jed Giorco. The San Diego Padres' Jed Giorco should be an interesting player to watch this spring. The 24-year-old infielder has established himself as one of the better offensive players in the minors. In 2011, Jericho hit 333 with 27 doubles and 25 home runs between high A and double A. He followed that up by hitting 311 with 28 doubles and 30 home runs last year. Jericho is a below average runner with a thick lower half, but he can definitely hit. He has quick hands, good bat speed, plus power, and really good plate discipline. The only question at this point is how the Padres will get Jericho's bat into their lineup. The emergence of Chase Headley at third base blocks Jericho at his natural position, and he really doesn't have the speed necessary to play corner outfield, at least not in Petco. But early word out of the Padres' camp is that he will see action at second base during spring training. Jericho does have good hands and did see some action at second base last year, but being able to hold down the position on a regular basis could be a bit of a stretch. If he can, and if the Padres are willing to let him learn on the job, Jed Jericho has the offensive tools to be a fantasy stud at a historically weak position, and so is definitely worth watching this spring. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars of baseball. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about embracing the PED problem. In last week's column, I mentioned in passing that it might make some logical sense to legalize performance-enhancing drugs. I wasn't necessarily taking a stand, I just meant it as a talking point, but the comment has generated a bunch of discussion. The more I think about it, though, the more it seems that our entire mindset on the topic may indeed be worth discussing. Consider this. Let's imagine that we live in a parallel universe. In this parallel universe, it is accepted that every professional in every field is expected to do whatever it takes to be the best. It doesn't matter what means they employ to achieve the maximum productivity, be it advanced education, physical training, 
or changing their bodies to conform to the needs of the profession they've chosen. This goes for CEOs and data entry clerks, policemen and street artists, roofing contractors, and athletes. In this parallel universe, any risk associated with these goals is accepted. CEOs accept the risk of high blood pressure and burnout. Data entry clerks accept the risk of carpal tunnel syndrome. Policemen and roofers accept the obvious dangers associated with being the best at their jobs. And it is assumed that professional athletes will engage in whatever training regimens are required and ingest whatever substances are necessary for them to perform at the peak of their abilities. In this parallel universe, fathers educate their sons on the pros and cons of every career path they might choose to take. For those who want to become firefighters or astronauts, they are taught about the benefits and risks of pursuing careers that in some cases require the ultimate sacrifice. And similarly, fathers can encourage their sons to pursue professional sports as a career, knowing that they may well be required to alter their body chemistry in order to excel at the topmost level as an athlete. And everyone has the option to reject the risk associated with a certain career. They can choose a different profession with a more acceptable risk level and engage in the other activity as a recreational pursuit. No expectations there. But in this parallel universe, we assume from the start that every professional athlete is taking some type of anabolic steroid, testosterone, human growth hormone, amphetamines, whatever it takes for him to be the best athlete he can possibly be. Those that don't are the exceptions. But we don't really need to travel to a parallel universe to find a career that is as equally glorified as professional sports and its professionals revered as role models. And it is universally accepted that these people will do whatever it takes to excel in their field. These professionals often have foreign substances injected into their bodies and in many cases undergo surgeries to alter their bodies. Many of them do this just so they can have a career in this profession. Others do this as they get older so they can stay gainfully employed. While these particular drugs and surgeries are deemed legal, it does not make them any less risky. Many of these professionals end up disfigured from all the drug use, and it's all accepted and, in some cases, revered. But we don't demonize actors and actresses when they have their Botox treatments or get plastic surgeries. While sports celebrities take drugs to improve strength and agility, is it any less morally corrupt for entertainment celebrities to improve their appearance. It's all a part of being the best at what you do. Frankly, when I look at Barry Bonds or Joan Rivers, I find them equally grotesque, but they both represent their own embodiment of success. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. But to be fair, Joan Rivers doesn't wear a size 9 and 3 quarters hat. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about extreme regression drafting targets for 2013. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February the 15th. 
Hope you had a happy Valentine's Day, and thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with baseball analyst and writer Joe Sheehan, the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. He does a great job analyzing the game and writing about it with terrific style. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League analyst was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Ray Murphy's Speculator column has 10 spring training questions in the National League. Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton, has players who might get off to slow starts because of injuries. Doug Dennis' bullpen's column looks at Lima targets. And Matt Cedarholm's market pulse will look at third baseman. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. On the site right now, I have part two of my research piece on pitchers who seem to have a knack for getting pitcher-positive outs. But is it for real? And, of course, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember, you can check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. My own personal Twitter feed is at Patrick Davitt. Feel free to look at that as well. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show so more people find out about it. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Steve Gardner of USA Today on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.